This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. Hi, sir. Is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends, and thanks for joining us here in Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show to the original series. My name is Drew, or Landru. My co-host is Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. This week, we're going to continue our discussion with Mark Cushman on his book, These Are the Voyages, Season 3, about the Season 3 of Star Trek, the original series. So we'll jump right into it. So here's Mike, Mark, and myself. So th- this actually, my, my wife came up with this question. Um, you know, in, in, in your intro to uh, book three, uh, you talk about how when you were a kid uh, and they, they switched the time slot to 10 o'clock on Friday nights and how you'd basically need to uh, sneak uh, and, and watch the episode while your family was, was gone at, at a football game or whatever. And uh, as a result you basically only got to see the first half of each episode because you had to run to bed and, and pretend to be sleeping when your family got home. And and you said that that uh, even though you didn't know it at the time, you were basically learning how to write because you would need to come up with your own endings for all these episodes. So mm-hmm. So the question which my wife had was, once you finally saw the episodes, you know, in syndication or whatever, were you ever like, yeah, mine was better. <laughs> rarely, rarely. Sometimes there were a couple occasions, yes, but mostly not. And it's not that mine weren't good. It's just that I'm I'm the type of personality that really appreciates other people's work. Uh, I did a lot of years here in Hollywood as a ghostwriter. Uh, they would bring me into, without credit, but they would pay me nicely to rewrite other people's scripts. And the reason that they called on me is, first of all, I had the ability to make stuff good. I'll give myself that pat on the back, and, and they did as well by calling me. But but mostly, it's that I didn't change things just for the sake of changing them. You know, I would look at what somebody else had written and find what worked and keep it. Because I didn't want to take away from somebody else's work. I didn't want to you know destroy what they had done in their minds, where a lot of writers come in and say, oh, I'm going to reinvent this in my own image. You know, no. I, I tried to preserve the other person's uh, uh, concept and, and everything they were doing and say, well, this line doesn't work, but I like these other lines, so I'm going to come up with a line that will bridge this and, and so forth. So that's what I do is, is I, I learn to appreciate other people's work. And so even though I might have come up with something that I thought was just fantastic, you know, I would watch what they had done and, and go like, like Requiem for Methuselah. You know, it, it wasn't one of my favorite episodes. It wouldn't make my top 20 list, but still, you, 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 the way I described it a moment ago, and if you watch it, you go, this is really a very interesting story, and what a fantastic ending. What a perfect ending to this particular story. Um, no, it's not as, it's not fun, like the ending of A Piece of the Action. Well, in a few years, Mr. Spock, they'll be coming to take a piece of our action, and we all laugh and go, what a great ending. 
you know, we walk away with a smile on our face. Well, you don't feel that when you see Requiem from Methuselah, but still, when you look at the context of what the story is and what is being said in that story and the, and the loneliness that's being examined, not just in Flint, but the loneliness of, of the character of Captain Kirk, who is driven by command, who's in love with his ship, who he can't sleep with, he can't cuddle with, but he's devoted his life to it. He's a very lonely, sad character in many ways. And Roddenberry intended him to be that. And and uh, so this story examines the loneliness of Kirk and, examines the lo- and by also examining the loneliness of Flint and gets us to think about that emotion and how it applies to our lives. So I see that. Now, when I saw it as a kid and, and even as a young adult, I thought, oh, I could have come up with a better ending. But if you really get into what the story is about and the emotion that it creates, you think about it and you go, no, this this is the perfect ending. They did it. So it may not be the perfect episode. It may not be my personal favorite, but it's perfect ending for what it is. So looking at it that way, I think most of these episodes are really champions. Now, there are some that aren't, you know, and, and The Children Shall Lead was, was a tragedy. And I say tragedy intentionally because the script, the, the story was very good. And the, and the script was very good, the early drafts anyway. Uh, these kids were, were traumatized uh, when they come down to the planet and they find all the dead people, which is kind of like Jim Jones, you know, I mean, which didn't happen for another 15 years. But seeing a mass suicide of people, what would make all these people take their lives? And then the kids are still alive and the kids witness this and the kids are all in shock and they're all hiding under things and they're, they're just uh, disheveled and trembling and terrified and NBC said no you can't do that that's that's going to upset the audience we can't be putting kids through this so they cleaned them up and they made them tremble less and they made them play ring around the the rosemary bush you know and, and stuff like that which dramatically isn't as effective it's kind of silly but they were rewriting the script to uh, address NBC's concerns that the audience might be upset over what they were seeing well, and the whole great story goes right out the window. Then you bring in Melvin Belli, and okay, it's done. But here's the other thing, you know, and Fred Freiberger takes blame for that. He says, that was my idea to cast Melvin Belli. Melvin Belli was famous, and he had never acted, but he, was, but he did act in the courtroom. And he uh, defended Lee Harvey Oswald. He, you know, he, he was, uh, was going to, and, and Jack, no, Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby, who shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, so this is a very, very famous lawyer, maybe the most famous lawyer at that time. And uh, and he's willing to make his acting debut on Star Trek. He said, That's going to get us ratings, and we need ratings in order to get our mid-season pickup. So they stuck Spock's brain on as first episode, knowing it would attract a big audience, and it did. Now, some of the audience wouldn't come back. They'd say, okay, the show's changed. I don't like it as much. I'm going to watch Judd for the Defense next week. But it got them to come out, and it got a really good rating that night. And then they did the Enterprise incident. And uh, that was based on the Pueblo, which was still in the hands of North Korea at that time. And every night on the news, day 230, the Pueblo is still being held by North Korea. These Americans are still prisoners of the North Koreans. What is Johnson going to do about this? And, And it was a spy ship, and they caught us spying, and they took the ship. And they're holding the country over a barrel, trying to get it back. 
So Dorothy Fontana said, we got to do this. And every night they called it the Pueblo incident. Every night on the news, it would lead off with the headline, the Pueblo, you know, day 233 of the Pueblo incident. So she did the Enterprise incident and kind of did a, a take on that story. They thought, this is going to get a good rating. And then uh, we'll do uh, And the Children Shall Lead with Melvin Belli. That's going to get a good rating. And if we can get a good rating our first three or four episodes, we'll get our mid-season pickup. Because that's when they have to decide if they're going to pick it up for a mid-season. It's by uh, the end of October. So the show premieres in mid-September. So for the first four weeks, they'd better bring in a good rating or they're not going to get picked up beyond 16 episodes. So he did what he had to do to ensure it. TV Guide gave and the Children Shall Lead a close-up listing. And every time TV Guide gave you a close-up listing, a half-page close-up listing as the show you should watch this night, and they had a big picture of Melvin Belli and made a big deal about it, it won its time slot. And so those first four episodes weren't necessarily the best. <laughs> they may have been the worst that Star Trek had to offer, but they were the ones that would get the most attention and draw in an audience, and that would get the ratings needed for a mid-season pickup. And it worked. So you have to look at it from a business point of view that he's not just producing a show. He's trying to save a show. And in that regard, he got us three full seasons. That's definitely true. You know, a terrible thing that you find out in book three uh, is that it was supposed to be 26 episodes. They actually had two more episodes they were going to film. And one of them was written by Theodore Sturgeon. And one of them was going to be directed by William Shatner. And they would have been probably the best two episodes of the third year. And uh, the Theodore Sturgeon one certainly would have been the most expensive of that season. They were they were doing episodes like Requiem for Methuselah to, to save money so that they could do this really big season finale. And while they were filming Turnabout Intruder, which turned out to be the last episode, halfway into the production, word comes down that NBC's cutting the last two. And so they didn't even get to film them. You know, th that's the heartbreak of working on a show. So you've saved your two best episodes. They've been written. They've been planned. Shatner's going to direct one, making his directorial debut, which would have been very promotable. And boom, NBC says, no, we're not going to take them. Hmm. And Paramount says, so you turn back to Paramount. Says, Can we shoot them anyway? No, no, we, we got deficit financing. We're not going to put the money up if NBC's not going to guarantee that they're going to air them. And so they get chopped off. Heartbreaking. <laughs> you <know>? Yep. <laughs> and yep. you feel it, you feel it when the word came down on the set. You know, there's interviews in there and, and everybody just says it was just, you know, so tragic. And then they have to finish Turnabout Intruder. And it's like Shatner was just stunned. And yet he had to turn around and do this big scene where he comes on the bridge and has a breakdown and everything. And how do you pull it together to do that? I love the story in book three. Uh that I interviewed France Nguyen and uh, she said, Oh, Mark, I don't know if I, you know, it's 45 years ago. Uh, if I can really remember anything of value for you. And I said, France, did you know, I knew you were married to Robert Cope and he, and I interviewed him for the I spy book I did. And he was really into political things. He was really into Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and him and Bill Cosby and everything else. And I said, the week you shot, uh, Alana Troyes, that was the week that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, right there in L.A. And and suddenly she just burst into tears. And it, uh, the memory started flooding back. And she remembered the scene she shot that day, which I verified because I had all the production schedules. 
there was a scene where Kirk is teaching her how to eat with utensils and act like a lady. And this is a chicken, and this is a fork, and this is a knife. <laughs> and he starts to walk out of the room, and she throws the knife at him. Uh, that's the scene they had to shoot right after getting word that Bobby Kennedy had been shot and might die. And he did die by the end of that day. And she said, between takes, everybody was in tears. And then, but then they would say action, and you had to pull it together and be these characters and play this scene. And she said she was so happy that she could escape into that character, escape the reality of what was happening that day by playing this character. So that that's amazing. And you find out that she and Chatner knew each other. They'd start on Broadway together in the world of Susie Wong for a year, and this was a reunion for them. You find out that that was a real knife, and it really was thrown by Shatner. They didn't use a stunt double, and it sailed by his ear a couple inches from his head and went into the wall. And take your DVD and slow it down frame by frame and watch that knife whiz by his head and he turns and looks back. You'll see him You'll see him pull a little to the right as the knife goes by, but then he recovers because we're seeing the back of his head and he turns in the same shot, no cutting. He turns and he's got that kind of smile on his face and he says, that'll be the next lesson for tomorrow. Not to kill your teacher, <laughs> whatever he says. And, and uh, that he did that. But then you find out that's the day that Bobby Kennedy was shot. You know, it's, it just adds so much more drama to it for me. And by the way, let me say one thing real quick, because uh, somebody mentioned this to me. They said, you know, I haven't bought your books, Mark. And yes, I'm here to sell books. So. They said, I haven't bought your books because I don't want to know what went on behind the scenes. I don't want to know about the memos and the budgets and all the problems on the set and how things happen because it'll take away from the reality of the episode. When I watch the episode, I'll be thinking about that stuff instead of just enjoying the episode. Not really true. Maybe the first time you watch it after you read the book. Oh, there's that thing with the knife. I got to see this, you know. But after that, this show is so good, which is why it's lasted 50 years or 48 years at this point. It's so good that um, you just you still are always going to get lost in it. The characters are so real. The drama is so great. The comedy is so great when they would do that. That, you know, after you watch it once, after reading the book, you know, you'll still be able to get back into it. It's, it's not going to, if it was a bad movie, maybe not, but it's Star Trek. It's not, it's not going to uh, be spoiled. I've always found that uh, reading and, and watching behind the scenes stuff helps me appreciate uh, the art more. And, yeah. and the story more, knowing that it didn't just come, you know, whole out, you know, of Roddenberry's mouth, but like all these other people contributed mm -hmm. to it. And and it does, it helps me appreciate the series more and, yeah. and anything more to know where these ideas came from and, and what could yeah. have been. Well, you know, we were talking a moment ago about how, um, uh, you know, these characters, uh, I don't know if we talked about this before you, we started the show or or within the show, but we were talking about how the characters, these actors and the writers and producers were, were the heroes, uh, the same way Kirk Spock and McCoy were. Uh, every week they would stick their neck out. And they did. I mean, you, look, you read the story about Plato's stepchildren and how NBC freaked out and came down and they had all their censor people on the set, all the suits were there, and they said, uh, you know, just kiss her on the cheek. And Michelle was offended. 
he can't kiss me on the lips. I'm some kind of a, a, a you know, a subhuman that he can't even kiss me. Well, Michelle, baby, you know, you're we're worried about the South. And well, maybe you're worrying too much. Maybe the South will be OK with it. Maybe the day has come for this, you know, and, and they didn't want to let it happen. And so Freddie called uh, Gene and Gene on one of his rare occasions at that point came flying in. Uh, drove on down and came onto the set and said, no, you got to let this go. And it was real important to Fred Freiberger. He he was the champion of that scene. He wanted to do that interracial kiss, which they had failed to do two years earlier on the series, and he knew about. And uh, so, you know, they all were fighting for this. And NBC's adamant that, uh, no, you got to shoot it our way. And so Roddenberry finally said, look, we're wasting time here on the set. This is the last day of production. We're running late, as always. Uh, Douglas Kramer's office at NBC or Paramount now has a mandate that they'll come down at 6:20 and turn off the lights. They won't allow us to shoot one minute beyond, and they're going to do that because they don't want to go broke, like Desi Lu did. And um, so we, you know, it's 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 six o'clock. We got we have 20 minutes. We got to get this done. We can't finish it tomorrow. We're starting another episode tomorrow. So here's a solution. You know, we'll shoot it both ways, and we can decide later. We can argue about this later and nbc says okay that's acceptable because we'll win <laughs> we'll just refuse to air it the other way so they they did the the uh the real kiss and then they were going to do the fake kiss where it's just like brushing your lips on her cheek or something and they only had time to do one take and the nbc guys are all over on the side of the stage looking and they can't see shatner because nichelle's head is kind of hiding his face they do the take the director says it's fine, everything's good, cut. It's 6.20, Douglas Kramer's people are turning the lights off. Okay, we're done. NBC walks away happy, thinking we'll fight about this another day. They look at the dailies the next day, and Bill Shatner crossed his eyes, intentionally <laughs> crossed his eyes on a close-up because the camera could see his face even though they couldn't. So the take was totally unusable. <laughs> now, there's a hero. <laughs> now, you know, any other actor would have been thinking, if I mess with the network, I may never work again. They're going to cancel the show. Word's going to get around that I defied the network. I may never work again. He didn't think about that. He thought about, no, this is a righteous cause. We're going to do this, and I am going to do something that's going to prevent them from using the fake kiss. And, and so these actors were heroes, just like Kirk was a hero. Shatner was a hero. You know, they, they all fought the battles every week. You read that, and the episode becomes better for me. It becomes more important and more interesting. And even though you may squirm a little bit at some of the stuff that goes on in that episode, it's, it's, it's better. And by the way, let me say something about that. So I hated Plato's stepchildren. It's so <laughs> that, that episode comes on and I, I was like 16 when I first saw it and I was so embarrassed. I thought, Oh my God. They're making Shatner act like a horse, and Spock is singing a song, and Michael Dunn's riding on Shatner's back, and Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and oh my God, <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. What, what are they doing? And I watch it now. It doesn't embarrass me anymore. Um, it makes me uncomfortable, but that's good because the whole point, and, and they were talked about this as they were doing it. It was like, this is going to make the audience uncomfortable, and Rodden, Roddenberry's attitude was good. They should be. Look what these, these people have lost all morality that they would do this to another human being. And we need 
to feel. We need to have a really strong emotional reaction to what these aliens are doing. And this will teach us something about ourselves. This will teach us that we never want to be like them. We never want to degrade other people. And, and we always have to think about how other people feel. We have to empathize with other people. They've lost the ability to empathize. And that's the theme of the story. And there's no better way to convey this theme than by doing this. And, uh, and you, you hear that. You hear the thinking that went into the story. And you go, okay, once again, a word I keep using. It's valid. It's valid drama. They're not all going to be comfortable. They're not all going to be our favorites. They're not all going to be the trouble with tribbles or whatever, but, but it's still, that's the beauty of Star Trek is so many different types of stories and they're all valid in their own way and important in their own way. So that's why I hope book three, while you may still say, well, these episodes aren't as good as the first two years for various reasons, but you may be able to look at them with a different perspective and, uh, and appreciate them as a result. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I, I agree. And that's one of the things that makes this book so interesting is, you know, not just to hear, you know, the them running, you know, their victory laps after making the great stuff, but also trying to figure out, you know, what went wrong and, and everything. And it's it's fascinating. Do we have time for one more? Sure. One more yeah. episode? Story? One, uh, <laughs> let that be your last battlefield. You know, that, that one of the things that bugged me was, is, but was so much wrong information on the internet and in other books and it's being corrected slowly, but surely I know there's a lot of changes that have been made on a lot of Star Trek websites because of these books. So I won't get credit for bringing this stuff out. They'll just think I just took it down off these, these sites, but no, the sites had it all wrong. They're making changes now, but even in Paula Block's book um, from a couple of years ago, Star Trek uh, 365, beautiful, beautiful picture book, coffee table book, beautiful colored pictures, which we don't have. We're, we're, an information book. We have 400 images in, in book three, and they're all rare and interesting, but hers are just beautiful things. It's a great book for the coffee table. But the information's not right, you know, and, and she was taking stuff off the internet. And she said about Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, she said, well, this is a, a script they were trying to do in the first year called Portrait of Black and White. Not true. Portrait of Black and White was a story by Gene Roddenberry. It was written by Barry Trivers, who wrote The Conscience of the King. This was his second assignment. It's about they being down to a planet that's an Earth parallel, and which Roddenberry loved doing those stories, and um, it's pre-Civil War America, except blacks are the ruling race and and whites are the slaves, and the away team is taken captive and put in shackles and everything. NBC said we cannot put this on the air, so Roddenberry rewrote it, and they still rejected it. And he had Gene Kuhn rewrite it during season two, and they still rejected it. So season three comes along, and Gene Kuhn's meeting with Gene Roddenberry to get his assignments. And he says, you know, we never were able to do that portrait of black and white. Let's do it. We kind of forgot ourselves. We made a mistake. We made a mistake, not NBC. We made a mistake in that we were being too direct in what we were doing. And the beauty of Star Trek is to disguise it, to tell a story on Vietnam and not make it obvious, or at least too obvious, that it's a story on Vietnam and so forth. So let's do it a totally different way. And he came up with this original story called Heaven Above and Hell Below, about two aliens, and one looks like the angel and one looks like a devil. And they come aboard the Enterprise, and the whole thing goes on like, let that be your last battlefield, except they look completely different. And that's how it was written. 
And five days before they're going to start filming it, Judd Taylor, the director, is sitting with Freiberger and uh, Singer. And he says, you know, this is too obvious. I know why Gene Kuhn did this. But we all know that the one who looks like the devil is not any worse than the one that looks like the angel. And that's going to be the statement of the episode. Is there another way we can do this? And Fred said, well, what do you, th what do you have in mind? He says, well, what if they're half white and half black? And, but they're white and black on different sides of the face, something the audience won't even notice until it's pointed out later in the episode. And Freddie said, I love that. And turned to Arthur Singer and said, write it. <laughs> Five days before they're going to start shooting the episode. Take Oliver Crawford's script that he rewrote from Gene Kuhn's script and rewrite it again completely differently and and i'll handle the rewrites on the one we're shooting this week you go rewrite that one and and so they totally turned it upside down in five days and so if you watch that episode and think well it could have been a little better yeah but it was being written as they were filming it and if you watch that chase scene on the on the ship that goes on forever it's because the script was too short and, you know they were just cramming it out and so they knew they, there's even a memo in there, or one of them says something. Freiberger says, you know, I know that that chase goes on forever, but we were three minutes short, <laughs> so we just replayed that footage. We had no choice. And uh, But what a profound episode. It's silly, it's campy, but it's profound at the same time, because, you know, if you're going to make a comment on racial prejudice, which is absurd in its own way, why not do it in an absurd way? But well, he's black on the right side. All of his people are black on the right side. We're white on the right side. You know, what I mean in its own way, that's brilliant because it's so simple. And it, and it, and but that's that's how prejudice is. So if they had done it differently, it wouldn't have been as good, in my opinion. Yeah, and I mean, I, as as I've said on numerous occasions, I think that's like the best episode of season three uh, to me, anyway. But it, yeah. yeah. And it's great to hear, like, you know... That one scene when, when, when it's revealed, when Frank Gorshin makes that, that speech. What, are you blind? Can't you see the difference between us? And, and boy, if, you, if the re whole rest of the episode leaves you kind of flat, that one scene by itself is, is brilliant. Yeah. Well, what, what, else, what else have you got uh, coming up uh, in the near future? Lost in Space for September, because that's the 50th anniversary, and for really hardcore Star Trek fans who maybe don't like Lost in Space, I'm happily surprised, but as I'm telling people about this, that most of them are saying, hey, I like that show too. Um, I'm doing it because it's the 50th, and because I had some ties in where I could, I could do this. But um, I always wanted to know why that show changed, why it started out in the black and white episodes is very serious science fiction, Swiss Family Robinson in Outer Space, which was a really good concept. And it kind of became uh, a fantasy comedy as it proceeded, and uh, which I didn't like as much, but there's actually very entertaining, I'm finding, as I'm watching some of them. It's like, okay, it's a totally different show, but it's, it's fun. Um, but why? What were they thinking? Why did they choose to do that? And nobody's ever been able to explain it. You know, you see the cast interviewed, and they say, well, we didn't like the, that they changed it. Jonathan loved it, Jonathan Harris, but Erwin Allen must have loved it, but we didn't, but what could we do? And they never really told you what Erwin Allen was thinking, what, what Tony Wilson, his script editor, was thinking, what CBS was thinking, why they would do this. And I decided I got to find out, you know, 
it'll take 50 years for people to find out, but I got to find out and I'm going to tell everybody. And so that's what I'm doing is I'm going through all the memos and all the papers and all the documents. And you will find out in September what they were thinking. And uh, so that's first. Next year, this is what you want me to talk about. I know you guys. Hey, no, <laughs> Next I'm, year, the 2016, the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. What am I going to do? Well, it's these are the voyages before. And it's going because the story's not over. You know, the first series is over, but the story of TOS isn't over. And there's so much to cover in what happened in the 1970s, why the animated series came about and, and uh, why uh, phase two didn't happen and why uh, motion picture turned out like it did. And, uh, and the whole stuff about will Spock come back and will Nimoy come back. And there's so much there. And uh, so much interesting stuff. And, so, and and I looked at it like I do any book project. I said, well, if I'm going to put a year of my life into this, is there stuff I can bring forward that we don't know about? So I started doing my research. And, and yes, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been talked about or hasn't been talked about properly or hasn't been put in proper context. So I think it'll be very uh, uh, revealing, very surprising book. And that's 2016. 2017 is the 30th anniversary of the premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, I had a meeting with David Gerald a couple weeks ago and interviewed him about that. And he gave me a giant box filled with all the memos from that first year as they were developing the show and deciding what to do in the show and what to put in the show and what not to put in the show and so forth. And it's all covered in these memos, like the ones that I have put in the other three books, so that you're in the room. You're part of the process of seeing the creation of Next Generation and knowing where the ideas came from, who came up with what. That was David's. This one was Dorothy Fontana. This one was Gene Roddenberry. This one was Bob Justman. And seeing it all come together and seeing things that they chose not to do and why. Uh, so that'll be 2017. Yeah, we we can't wait. This is this is like this is like when we found out they were going to be making more Star Wars movies. It's like what what? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, but I don't have any reservations. <laughs> well, how do you feel about that, guys? Are you are you excited knowing J.J. Abrams is going to do uh, the Star Wars movie? I am. I'm super yes. excited now. Yeah, now that now that we've had a lot of time to dwell on it, <laughs> I'm I'm excited. Can't wait. Yeah, he knows how to entertain. For sure, for sure. That he does. And and hey, Lawrence, Lawrence Kasdan yeah. coming back to write. I mean, what? Come on, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be a. It 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 makes us want to stick around for a couple of years, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have to take care of ourselves. We got to be here to see this. Yep. <laughs> I know. Want to use thirty one? I know you got to you got to start watching what you eat and everything. You don't want to miss any of this. <laughs> yep. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. This has been really awesome. Uh, definitely. Yes, it has. Really incredible. Definitely. Everyone should definitely well, check out book three for sure because it's fascinating. No pun intended. It is. We, we'll do this again when book four comes out, okay? Unless okay. you guys are closet Lost in Space uh, fans, and if that's the case, we'll do it again in, uh, in September. <laughs> I, I, I wish Lost I knew about orbit. Lost in Space just so I could talk about it, but I know nothing about Lost in Space, unfortunately. Well, we'll send you the book. We'll send you the book, and then you can interview me. And by awesome. the way, there'd be a lot, there's a lot about Star Trek in that book because, you know, the two shows were being made simultaneously. Sure. And every time Lost in Space did something, 
it would have a knee jerk at Star Trek and they would say, we're not going to do that or we're going to, we're going to take a different road and everything else. So it's, it's really, there, there are a lot of cross references and it does help you to understand and appreciate a lot of the decisions being made at Star Trek because they were following Lost in Space. This is, I didn't know this. I just found this out. The, the pilot, uh, the the second pilot for Lost in Space. There was a second pilot just like with Star Trek. Uh, the second pilot for Lost in Space, the reluctant stowaway, was shot on the same days as the second pilot for Star Trek where No Man Has Gone Before. They both started shooting on the same exact date, oh, wow. just a few miles away from each other. Lost in Space was filming at 20th Century Fox. Star Trek was filming at the Culver City lot, which uh, they, they later moved to... Um, uh, the Hollywood lot for the series, but they did the first two pilots in the Culver City lot for Desilu. So they are literally like three miles apart. They started production on the same exact day, and they ended production on the same exact day, running two, day, two days over, both of them. Wow. Is, that, is that weird? That's crazy. <laughs> so crazy. so it's, it's, it is, it, there are, there are cross-reference things. And it's an excuse to watch the show, and you, know, you may actually have some fun watching it. Yeah, We'll see. Not? Well, thanks a lot for joining us. We, we really appreciate it. And uh, anytime you want to come back, we'd love to have you. Yep. I'll come back in September. How's that? Sounds good. <laughs> and let's hope nobody else dies between now and then. If that's the case, I'll come back sooner. But okay. please not have, have anybody else die. Yes, okay. se September's fine. Yes. September sounds good. <laughs> All right, guys. Oh. I'm ready. We'll oh. talk to you then. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. It's always a pleasure talking with Mark, and we appreciate him coming on the show. You can find his books at thesearethevoyagesbooks.com. And again, we thank him for, for being on with us. Well, talking with Mark Cushman's not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week, so here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. <laughs> It's not an overstatement, and you had said in your introduction that without, without him and his hand guiding all of this, then, then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was, and if it had not been successful, then it, it, you know, it probably would have meant the end of Star Trek at that point. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martaban to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Curzon is involved with the Kittimer yep. Accords. Spock is at Kittimer when those are being talked about, so you would think they would have run into each other They probably least. hung out in the bar together. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! <laughs> the Ready Room. The movie series would not have relaunched and, and become what it was if not for the amazing bounce of... The Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan was to Star Trek the same thing that uh, The Best of Both Worlds was to Next Generation. Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, I've always liked the... Uh, I like that episode for... I mean, it's one of the most derided of the of the original series episodes, but yet I always it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm -hmm. it over 
So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. The 602 Club. Like, I, I could kind of dismiss Droids in Distress and Fight or Flight and everything like that. And I was just kind of watching the background. But all of a sudden, I started catching myself, like, stopping working and, <laughs> and just focusing on watching. And, uh, and so it just got better and better and better. And I think I was hooked by episode four, Breaking Ranks. That's when I was like, okay, I like this show. This is good. Warp 5. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, or you can just stream from the website. You can visit Trek.fm slash podcast to get the links. If you'd like to contact us and share your thoughts on today's show, you can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send a show and choose standard orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab on the left-hand column of any page to send us a voicemail using a webcam's microphone. And you can talk to us and our other listeners at our Facebook group, The Babel Conference. In social media, you'll find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter under username trek.fm. You can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, and participating in some conversations in the Babel Conference. You can find Mike at Mumbles3K, and on CommentaryTrackStars.com, and on CommentaryTrekStars here on this very network. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring Standard Orbit to you each week, and our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's World, Audible has something for everyone. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today, catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read, and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trek.fm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trek.fm, and we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek.fm. We'd also like to thank Richard Rutledge Jr. for being our associate producer this month. You can find him on Twitter at RUT8972, and we really appreciate him supporting us on Patreon. And lastly, there's another way you can keep us in orbit, and that's by supporting us on Patreon as well. If you go to patreon.com slash trek.fm, you'll find a list of donation levels where you can get things like exclusive digital goodies, early access to episodes, access to our project manager, and even be listed as an associate producer, like Richard. You'll also find out where the donations can go, things like covering the monthly cost of hosting and distribution, hiring an editor for our shows, and upgrading our equipment. Again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm, so check it out. Next week... I believe that Mike and I will be presenting our pitches for the next Star Trek movie. So uh, be sure to tune in for that. Well, everybody, thanks for listening this week. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landry. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead. Walk factor one. Hi, sir.